Hello, how are you doing? My name is Brendan Ogle and welcome to the very first episode of Left is Right. Over the next number of weeks and months, I hope that this podcast will give an opportunity for us to consider, discuss and debate some of the issues affecting our country and our society and indeed our world at this time of global pandemic. I'm 52 years old and I'm speaking to you from Dublin, Ireland. I'm a husband, a father, a worker, and a trade unionist. I'm doing this in my spare time, but I'm doing it to hopefully bring forward some ideas and bring forward a discussion at a time when we really need an honest discussion about the nature of the country and the world we live in. In this little country called Ireland, we have never, never yet, in our almost 100 years of independence, had a progressive government. Our government has always been led by one of two right-wing parties, Fianna Fáil or Fine Gael. And it is my hope or my dream that someday we will have a progressive government with neither Fine Gael or Fine Gael, which is not in hock to vested interests, to bankers, to property developers, to landowners or to all the other vested interests that seem to subvert the interests of the majority of our people. But let's not get too heavy too soon. We live in a time of global pandemic, as I've just said. It's the ninth day of our major lockdown here in Ireland. As we go through this time of crisis, this time of worry, this time of concern for us all, for our families, for our friends and for our communities, let's adhere to the public health warnings in relation to hand cleaning, cough etiquette and social distancing. Let's adhere to those principles and let's take this time to reflect. Let's take this time to think. Let's take this time to hope that over the next number of weeks and months, we can emerge from this emergency, locally, nationally and internationally, with a better world, with a fairer world and with a world where we are putting people, we're putting our services, our health services, we're putting care for each other. First, first above everything else. Welcome. Welcome to Left is Right. For the rest of my first episode, I'm going to talk and read, not at this stage, about Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, the two parties of the right in Ireland, but about the Irish Labour Party. I'm doing so today because the Irish Labour Party has just elected its new leader, Alan Kelly. Tipperary uh, Dollar TD. And today, a friend of mine who's a member of the Labour Party, somebody who I like and respect, posted uh, a message um, heralding this election and describing the Irish Labour Party as the party of Connolly and Larkin. Now, during this pandemic, we are seeing and hearing many, many strange things. Uh, 10 days ago, our Taoiseach, uh, caretaker Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar, um, on the national television, described this generation as probably the bravest generation this country has ever seen, uh, including those who fought to set up this nation in 1916. Um, I don't know where the Taoiseach thinks that puts him. Is he also seeking to be cast in the image of Connolly and Larkin and those men and women? But for me... The Labour Party comparison really sticks in the crawl. 
And if we are going to build a better Ireland and a better world beyond this pandemic, we need to stop this nonsense. We need to stop making the same old mistakes, pandering to the same old vested interests and falling for the same old tricks again. I could talk about the Irish Labour Party for a long time. I'm going to do something a little bit different in this first episode. I'm going to read, but I'm going to read my own words. Four years ago, I published a book. It was based on the the massive water charges campaign in Ireland. Uh, And one chapter of that book uh, is about, in fact, it's called Chapter 4, The Labour Party, From Democratic Socialism to Social Democracy. The chapter's about 20 pages long, 21 pages long, actually. I was just thumbing through today, reflecting on Alan Kelly's election, reflecting on what this party have done. I'm going to say no more about it. I'm going to read these 20-odd pages. That's going to form the basis of my very first podcast. Uh, And it'll help people maybe to understand the historic context of these issues, to understand the issues and remember the issues that have gone on with that party in the last number of years and decades. Because, as I say, if we're going to build... We need to build moving forward. So without further ado, the Labour Party from democratic socialism to social democracy. If we live at a time where the dominant economic model is so aggressively targeting methods of moving wealth and the assets upwards, what have been the political responses to it here in Ireland? Throughout this book, politics, in all of its guises, plays a part. But it is important that I set out at the beginning my analysis analysis of the Irish Labour Party and their role in our broken state. I do so because while the founders of the party could not have foreseen the exact political manifestations that would emerge 100 years after the reading of the proclamation, they certainly knew that those with power and capital would seek ways to hold on to and keep our citizens relatively impoverished. The Labour Party was created by these men of vision to counteract those efforts and to pursue an egalitarian republic. The role of the Labour Party in the water debate, and in fact in our society in general, strikes at the heart of the subject matter, but not in a good way. The Labour Party is now led by Brendan Howland, and the days since he took office, following a vote of their 11-person parliamentary party, have seen him all over the airwaves. Brendan Howland and his varying roles and positions encapsulate perfectly the wider quagmire the Labour Party has gotten itself into and from which it may never emerge. My view is that at least under the current personnel and direction, not only does the Irish Labour Party not deserve to survive, but it is an obstacle to progress towards a more equal Ireland. In fact, it is an enabler of neoliberal inequality. A quick history. Labour was established in Britain by the trade unions to give them, and the workers they represented, a voice in Parliament. They were to be the political wing of an industrial movement. And the Irish Labour Party was later founded in 1912 by James Connolly, Jim Larkin and William O'Brien. When the Irish Trade Union Congress National Executive decided to establish a political arm over 100 years ago, it stated that, quote, In any parliament to be elected in Ireland, Labour must be represented as a separate and independent entity, 
having no connection with any other party. End of quote. This directive could not be clearer. And yet the reverse has been the case for the greater part of the Labour Party's existence. It is described in its constitution as a democratic socialist party. But in recent days, Brendan Howland has been describing it only as a social democratic party. Previous leaders such as Joan Burton, Eamon Gilmore and Pat Rabbit routinely described the party as a social democratic party. As if the concept of social democracy was interchangeable with the concept of democratic socialism. It is not. The Labour Party has a unique history in Irish politics, in the sense that its origins do not derive from the fractious civil war which spawned Fine Gael and her predecessors, and Fianna Fáil. These two right-of-centre parties are ostensibly mirror images of the British Tory party. If Fianna Fáil describes itself as having a broader base than the landlord class that spawned Fine Gael, that is probably true, but the reality of their economic policies is that very little, at least up to now, has divided these two parties for decades. Former Taoiseach John Bruton conceded as much when he said in December 2015, quote, Fine Gael and Fine Fáil have complemented each other through Irish history. In Ireland, we have had consensus about major long-term policies, largely because we haven't had a sharp left, right or ideological divide. We have had differences, but they are differences about other things, not economics, and that has served the country very well. Labour, on the other hand, began life as a socialist party. That the brand of socialism was moderate and could never at any point in the post-partition era have been described as radical is arguably inevitable in a socially conservative Ireland. It is hard to be a radical democratic socialist in a state controlled in large part by the Catholic Church, especially since the 1937 constitution gave that church a, quote, special place until change occurred in the 1990s. The power and influence of the Catholic Church has been left untouched by successive national revolutions. It, has, it was strengthened by the long counter-revolution begun by Comunail and continued by Fianna Fáil. Parish pump concerns combined with red scares ensured that the church's privileged position went unchecked by the Labour Party. For example, it was only in 1995 that the constitutional prohibition on divorce was removed from Bunrock na Heron by a vote carried by a margin of just 9,114 votes out of a valid poll of 1,628,728. This followed a bitter campaign characterised by slogans such as Hello Divorce, Goodbye Daddy. In the years that followed, the scale of church abuse, rape, effective kidnapping and violence towards generations of children began to become clear in church scandal after scandal. Finally, Ireland began to emerge from under the bishop's garments into something resembling maturity, at least on social issues. We have never yet reached a stage of having an informed and mature discussion on economic issues. It has been the job of the Labour Party to lead such a national debate. That is not just my opinion. That is their duty under their own rules. And it is a task which they have entirely abandoned. 
from at least the mid-1990s, an opportunity has opened up for the Labour Party to at last engage with the Irish electorate in a manner that was about grown-up as opposed to juvenile civil war politics. The politics of right and left, or tax and spend, or public or private, or equality versus inequality, have been available for Labour to engage to engage in free of Catholic dogma for at least two decades. They have not done so. They have done the opposite. I believe I understand democratic socialism, and I believe I also understand social democracy. I am a democratic socialist, but I am most certainly not a social democrat. How do I explain this? Is it just jargon? Not at all. The difference between these political concepts, constructs even, goes to the very heart of the inequality we face today across the globe and its root causes. Or, to be more precise, the difference between being a democratic socialist or a social democrat is, in my view, the difference between those who seek to oppose social, economic and political inequality and those who seek to kidnap the flag of the left and to abuse the ethos handed to us by Connolly and Larkin, which actually helps to enable social, economic and political inequality. James Connolly believed in a workers' republic, which cherished all of the children of the nation equally and was egalitarian in nature. There is a plaque in my office with possibly his most famous quote, certainly my favourite, which is, our demands most moderate, we only want the earth. Another longer quote from Connolly best provides the measuring stick by which I measure all of our political parties, but particularly the Labour Party, which he co-founded. It is this, quote, Ireland, as distinct from her people, is nothing to me. And the man that is bubbling over with love and enthusiasm for Ireland, yet can pass unmoved through our streets and witness all the wrongs and the suffering, shame and degradation wrought upon the people, yea, wrought by Irish men upon Irish men and women, without burning to end it, is, in my opinion, a fraud and a liar in his heart, no matter how he loves that combination of chemical elements he is pleased to call Ireland. End of quote. In this centenary year of the reading of a proclamation declaring an egalitarian republic, can anybody claim we have a nation that cherishes all of its children equally? I will go further. Can anybody even say that as a state we have ever even tried? As a nation, we are not trying and we never have. There has never been a government in this state that hasn't been led by either Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil. And there has never been a government that made redistribution of wealth downwards its number one priority. That is, or should have been, the key role of the Labour Party. When I became an official with the then ATGWU Trade Union in 2004, the union was affiliated to the Irish Labour Party. The union then had a strategic position as to how to build a true workers' movement called the Third Way. The position advocated that Labour should declare that as a matter of policy, it would never again go into coalition with Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil. By this time, 
Labour had entered into coalition with either of the mainstream parties on seven occasions, suffering electorally and rendering itself increasingly unattractive to large sections of the working class. By doing so, the view, which I agreed with, was that it was unlikely that either Fine Gael or Fine Fáil would ever have an overall majority to form a government, and by removing themselves as a mudguard for the right, Labour would force the two civil war parties together, thereby opening up a space for a truly progressive, democratic, socialist and independent Labour party and movement. That was 12 years ago. And whatever the compelling logic, in my view, of that approach, once an election is held and Labour has a chance to get into ministerial office, the opportunity to reshape a better Ireland has always been squandered. These decisions are explained away as social democrats doing their, quote, duty to act in, quote, the national interest. A few words about social democracy. I believe social democracy is a compromise with capitalism, which its advocates, perhaps sincerely and perhaps not, believe is the best that they can ever achieve. The social democratic models that emerged in Britain and other parts of Europe in the aftermath of World War II could be viewed as a. a result of social struggles and a shift in the balance of power globally from capital to labour, b. a compromise of interests in specific historical conditions that cannot be recreated, or c. a legitimate strategy for working towards socialism. However, this tactical compromise became the end goal and third-way responses complemented the neoliberal offensive. There has been a slow change in the nature of social democratic parties and social democracy itself. There is nothing fighting back about social democracy. There is nothing radical and there is certainly nothing revolutionary about social democracy. The first real social democrat in this sense was probably Mikhail Gorbachev, who faced with massive corruption and unrest within the Soviet Union, felt the best thing to do was to work to collapse the state and do a deal with that ni- nice Mr Bush Sr. in the White House. From the vantage of a tottering Kremlin, Gorbachev came to believe that, quote, benevolent capitalism existed elsewhere and he was seduced into believing that by working with the likes of Bush, he could bring democracy to what was soon to be the former Soviet Union, and also that he could deliver a whole range of personal freedoms which the citizens of his country and the rest of the European Eastern Europe seemed to crave. On its own, this may have worked out. Unfortunately for Russia's dispossessed people, dispossessed of the national wealth by oligarchs, that is, Bush had not only swallowed the entire Milton Friedman brick, but was also in hock to Democrats, such as the beheading Saudis, the oil-rich Kuwaitis, and an arms industry with an insatiable thirst for perpetual war to drive its profit machine. So we got Glasnost and Perestroika, and the result is that Russians now have freedoms that they didn't have. They have freedom to watch Hollywood movies and eat Big Macs. They have freedom to drink non-fat caramel macchiatos from Starbucks. They have freedom to borrow and accrue personal debt. They have freedom 
to have their assets stolen by oligarchs and used to buy football clubs in London and elsewhere. And they have freedom to be slaves to financial capital as the 1% take over Russia as surely as they have taken over the rest of us. What has that got to do with Ireland and the Labour Party, you ask? Well, by the time Ireland was maturing from a backward, conservative, church-controlled state in the mid-1990s, it was already clear that any pact between social democracy and aggressive capitalism would not result in any kind of halfway house third way solution, where the more excessive elements of extreme right and left-wing ideology would work together to deliver a moderate economic model of growth allied to investment in public services. Instead, it was already clear that Milton Friedman had succeeded in persuading leaders such as Thatcher and Reagan to unleash a new wave of social aggressive capitalism, manifest through unregulated finance capital, increasingly reckless speculation, privatisation, globalisation and a destruction of public services that would see a massive redistribution of wealth upwards. The only thing that would trickle down from this economic monster would be inequality, social exclusion and the ending of any real democracy. Tony Blair was, is, a social democrat. I'm just going to let that sentence sit there for a second. Blair came to power in 1997 with New Labour in giving the old party of the working class a new label to denote the final move from democratic socialism to social democracy. At least, tr- at least there was a semblance of honesty in the New Labour motif. According to Blair, the social democrat, Thatcherism hadn't been all that bad after all. Globalisation wasn't really that bad either. Privatisation of water, electricity, gas and transport weren't bad. And so bloody what if previously vibrant communities like Durham in terms of mining or Muddowell Lanarkshire in terms of steelworks were now full of retired or unemployed people on premature pensions or social welfare. So what if the hearts had been ripped out of previously working communities all over Britain and jobs were now in China, Taiwan and Indonesia? So what if the cars that used to be made in the Midlands were now made in Japan and famous British brands such as Rover were now to be owned by Germany's BMW? New Labour, almost as a badge of honour, would not reverse any of it and would not invest in manufacturing or rebuilding Britain. New Labour would not do anything to try to recreate the society that Thatcher had decreed did not even exist. No, what New Labour would do would be to compromise with neoliberalism and ultimately, under Blair's leadership, would actually become its champion and embrace the economic imperialism of war. Here we have the true nature of social democracy. It describes its own evisceration by aggressive neoliberal capitalism as a compromise. New Labour would also go on to enter or invent wars based on false premises and information to achieve the twin aims of stealing assets from the Middle East and keeping the profit-driven war machine ticking over. So John Kilcott has now outlined in massive detail just how crooked, evil even, 
the new Labour project of warmongering was. So what if it all costs some working class lives on both sides of the Atlantic, not to mention those on the other side? That was just collateral damage in the pursuit of neoliberal nirvana. And don't even get me started about how, the, how all the unnecessary consumption driven slowly to keep up with the need of perpetual growth has impacted on a dying planet. Blair certainly helped achieve peace in Northern Ireland and for that he and Bill Clinton deserve praise. But that praiseworthy endeavour did not deserve the unquestioning near idolatry of his new Labour project from the Irish Labour Party that Connolly had founded in Ireland. This is especially true that the party had within its grasp the chance to force Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael together at last and create a strong democratic socialist alternative. Instead, what we got from Irish Labour was exactly what the British got from New Labour, a social democratic sellout. Nothing makes this choice made by the Irish Labour Party and its impacts clearer than their position before 2011 and the choices the party made afterwards. In my view, election 2011 was the second last chance, we'll come to the last later, which occurred in November 2014, that Labour had to make the breakthrough that they and all who want a fairer and more equal society so badly needed. Lest we forget, election 2011 was fought against a background where the nation had lost its economic sovereignty due to years of mismanagement of the state by bankers, building developers, financial regulators and governments. Fianna Fáil in particular were culpable in this regard more than any other party, since it was in office and engaged in cronyism and corruption that enabled the breaking of a nation. Fianna Fáil, however, had never seized power in any way other than through the polls, and the Irish people themselves had, for too long, voted in known chancers and charlatans interested only in personal enrichment and status. From Hahi to Ahern, from Burke to Lawler, and many more besides, the Irish people routinely voted in spoofers and then wondered how it all went wrong. Well, it went so wrong in 2008 and 2009 that we got a Troika bailout package as we surrendered the economic sovereignty we had for so long sought. We created the crisis and the archangels of disaster capitalism arrived to enslave us in return. Labour was furious and talked a great game. When the bailout went to a vote in the Dáil in December 2010, it was passed by 81 votes to 75, with both Labour and Fine Gael, then in opposition, opposing it. But this opposition was not really about the fundamentals of the bailout. What Labour and Fine Gael opposed was not the bailout itself, but the terms on which it was negotiated. It seemed they had all agreed that, Fundamentally, the taxpaying public would be forced to pay the bills as the banks were rescued and the bondholders paid. While the gamblers would have lost their shirts at the altar of financial capital speculation, instead they left with their pockets bursting, filled by low and middle income earners in taxes and cuts to public services and wages. Labour only opposed the terms of the loans paid by the Troika 
and promised to renegotiate these terms if voted in after the next election. It is often forgotten that what was described as a bailout was in fact the enforced acceptance by the state of some of the most expensive loans it had ever taken out, rammed down our necks by our so-called friends in Europe and the IMF at a time when we were most in need of real help. With friends like Jean-Claude Trichet, who needs enemies? When the 30th doll fell on the 1st of February 2011, it triggered an election that took place on the 25th of February of that year. At that point, Fianna Fáil had brought the country to ruin and were nearly in ruin themselves. Two former Taoiseach, Bertie Ahern and Brian Cowan, had been forced from office and the soldiers of destiny had angered the population to such an extent that their destiny was an almighty kicking from the people in the upcoming election. A kicking that was duly delivered. Fine Gael had been in opposition and hadn't been in within a whiff of power since being routed under Michael Noonan's leadership in 2002 when it lost 23 seats. So bad was that loss that Noonan was forced to resign the leadership immediately and was replaced by Enda Kenny, who had sat on the back seats of the Dáil longer than any other TD without ever getting a sniff of ministerial office. Kenny was a survivor, but if he was a leader, his leadership qualities had been well hidden for a very long time. Between 2002 and 2011, he had done a reasonable job rebuilding Fine Gael to within touching distance of getting the support back of its traditional upper-class, moneyed and land-owning base. But he was hardly a heavyweight. So, with Fine Fáil on the ropes and losing, and Fine Gael having just survived an existential crisis, this was the perfect backdrop for Labour to blow both away in 2011. Labour Party leader Raymond Gilmore seemed to get it. When launching the Labour Party election manifesto on the 3rd of February 2011, flanked by Joan Burton and key Labour strategists, he set out the party's position clearly, concisely and rather impressively. The position addressed a fuming public anger at how our European friends, particularly the ECB, had battered us in terms of the bailout loans while also taking over our decision-making processes. This is what Eamon Gilmore said in full. Quote, the first choice that the Irish voters are going to have to make in this election is whether our budgets are decided by Frankfurt or whether they are decided by the democratically elected government of the Irish people. Let's be very clear about this. The bad deal that Fianna Fáil made with the EU and the IMF effectively writes the budgets for the next four years. Fianna Fáil are prepared to follow these budgetary straitjackets that have been laid out by the EU and IMF. That's Fianna Fáil's manifesto. They will take the shilling and follow the drum. And it appears to us that Fine Gael are essentially taking the same approach because they accept the €9 billion Euro target in budgetary cuts that is in the prescription. Let's be clear too. If as a country we accept the budget based on the EU-IMF deal, it will mean more of the same that we got in December, a vicious austerity budget that had effectively been dictated by the EU-IMF and implemented by the previous government just before leaving office. It'll be more taxes, 
more cuts, high unemployment and no recovery. This election, therefore, is effectively a choice to be made by the Irish people about whether our budgets and our financial affairs are going to be done Frankfurt's way or the way that the Labour Party is proposing. And that choice comes down between the choice of the €9 billion, Euro, which has been accepted on a consensus basis by both Fine Fáil and Fine Gael, or the package of me- me- measures that the Labour Party is proposing here today, and that Joan Burton will outline to you in a few minutes. There are essentially three things we are saying here. Firstly, the deal with the EU and IMF must be renegotiated. Labour is putting forward the basis for its renegotiation and we are asking every single voter in the country to support us on this. Frankfurt's way or Labour's way? End of quote. It would be easy now to look back on this as the ramblings of a man drunk under hope of power on the campaign trail. Indeed, such was the mess Fine Fáil was in and Fine Gael not much better, that Gilmore for Taoiseach calls were being loudly heard from within the party and, allegedly, posters with this demand were on call. In fact, in 2010, an MRBR poll in the Irish Times had projected that Labour were the most popular party in Ireland for the first time ever, at 32%. By the time the election actually came around, support had dropped to just over 19%, which was still impressive and certainly a strong platform to build on. But events since, namely the choices Labour made to enter government and how they have behaved while in there, have now led to a situation where most of what remains of the party simply cringe when reminded of the Labour's way or Frankfurt's way moment. But I do not believe it was loose talk or unscripted exaggeration by the then leader at all. Firstly, Eamon Gilmore, accurately in my view, sets out in the address the correct critique and the proper questions at hand at the time for that campaign. The question was absolutely about whether we in Ireland would decide our budgets or not, and who would be made to pay for the disaster that had occurred, and at what cost. Gilmore also, entirely correctly, links the Fine Fáil position inextricably with Fine Gael's on those questions, and rightly opens up the debate, as I have tried to do here, on the opportunity to at last develop a real progressive alternative to the two Conservative civil war parties. At this remove, of course, Labour may point to the fact that once elected, the crisis was so bad, so endemic, that for all of Gilmore's well-meant words, this opportunity was not realistic at that time. I fundamentally disagree with that view. If Milton Friedman can design a disaster capitalism model, whereby a crisis such as this poses the opportunity for the systematic overthrow (coughs) of freely elected democracies and the redistribution of assets and wealth upwards, then there is absolutely no reason why such a crisis does not also offer an equal opportunity to restructure society in a fair and more equitable manner. A society that not only ensures no repeat of the lunacy that caused the crisis in the first place, but one that enforces an economic redistribution of wealth and assets that aids the majority instead of just those at the top for a change. In uttering these words, I fundamentally believe that Eamon Gilmore, as leader of the Labour Party, launching an election campaign, 
identified the correct position, the correct opponents and the correct moment of opportunity. And that he did so not by some accident. He did so deliberately and strategically. Lest there be any doubt about how clear, how emphatic Labour had been on the key choices to be made by the government after election 2011, here's another quote. <coughs> this one was delivered by the current Labour leader, Brendan Howland, on the national news on the 18th of February 2011, just seven days before polling day and over two weeks after Gilmore's comments. If Gilmore had got it wrong or straight off script, there was no sign of it in Howland's contribution. On the contrary, as the election grew closer, Labour was continuing to engage on the key issues in a way that struck a chord with those who opposed austerity taxes that was clear and unambiguous. Quote, We are not in favour of water charges. We don't believe in a flat rate and you couldn't meter everybody in years. So our manifestly has clearly set out that we are against water charges. End quote. A week later, the election took place and the result was a seismic change in the state of the top three parties. The electorate put Fianna Fáil to the sword with the party suffering its worst election result ever. They lost a massive 57 seats, winning just 20. While Labour's 19.4% of first preference votes saw them go from 17 seats to 37, its biggest ever return. Fine Gael won 51 seats going from 25 to 76, just eight short of an overall majority. Labour now had a problem. They had 37 seats and were the second largest party elected to the 31st Dáil, well behind Fine Gael, but well ahead of the disgraced Fianna Fáil. The nation was in a political and fiscal crisis that would get worse before it got better. These facts were unarguable. Would they stay out of government? Or would they enter coalition with Fine Gael and form a government with, which, with a 60-seat majority, would be the most stable in the history of the state? To those who advocated entering coalition, the argument was that they could ameliorate the worst excesses of Fine Gael's conservative orthodoxy. They were social democrats and it was their duty to act in the national interest. They could renegotiate the terms of the bailout and ensure that it was those who caused the crisis and not the weakest in society who paid. Those advocating that they should stay out argued that they had made certain commitments, as outlined earlier, that they could, that could not be delivered in coalition with a Conservative Party. Those commitments were, were anathema to proponents of neoliberalism and should have been repulsive to anybody advocating neoliberal policies. This was their time to stay out, to hold their ground and build a new progressive movement that they could lead, to reject the tradition of propping up right-wing governments and instead embrace their mandate of opposition. It was the laissez-faire policies of the Conservative parties that had led to the crisis and Labour could have ensured that it was those parties who paid the price. At some point, citizens were going to fight back. They will have taken austerity enough and would demand real change. When that point came, Labour needed to be there to lead the fight. That last paragraph I read is about tactics, and there were certainly tactical reasons for Labour not to enter government in 2011. But politics is about principles, policies, ideology even at some point. 
If we all stand for the same thing, then sooner or later we will discover that we stand for nothing at all. The prescription of austerity to a nation suffering a fiscal emergency stems from the ideology that is neoliberalism. It takes money out of the pockets of those who spend whatever they get on things they need. And taking money off people for things they need plunges them into poverty. Food poverty, fuel poverty, joblessness, homelessness and all manner of deprivations ensue from austerity. Not only that, but it starves the economy of spending, thereby affecting small and medium businesses in particular. Clothes shops, restaurants, bars and hairdressers all suffer when the wages of those on, on low and medium incomes or those on social security are drastically reduced. The money that is saved or cut by austerity doesn't disappear. It finds its way into busted banks and the pockets of bondholders, both secured and unsecured, and other investors, in a real way. And in a less visible way, assets which belong to us are then sold, like Borgosh Aaron or Aer Lingus. Sold to the rich so they can charge us who used to own them and push the prices up to boot. Austerity is nothing but a wealth transfer carried out as part of a class strategy. By this transference of wealth upwards, class power is consolidated in the hands of capital. And to those who say, it doesn't work, you are wrong. It does work. It works perfectly. It works like a dream for those for whom it is meant to work. It makes the already wealthy even wealthier. Labour knew that this was the game. We are dealing with people of intelligence here. Eamon Gilmore knew what austerity was meant to do when he said it was Frankfurt's way or Labour's way. Brendan Howland knew what water was one of the key assets that the austerity agenda seeks to push into the ownership of the rich when he said Labour would oppose water charges. Oh yes, they knew all right. But social democrats do what social democrats always do. And on the 9th of March 2011, they did what no democratic socialist would ever do. They did what James Conley or Jim Larkin would never have done. They entered into a pact with neoliberals manifest in Fine Gael to ram austerity down the necks of the Irish people. They entered into a pact to make the poor and the working class pay for a crisis caused in its entirety by the agents and advocates of unregulated wealth and capital. That decision and the apparent relish with which Labour carried it out, while the poorest and most vulnerable suffered the most, has meant that Labour are now decimated and currently hold just seven of the 37 seats they won in 2011. We will trace their role in these events throughout this book, but in my view, the pact Labour did with neoliberalism in 2011, at a time when they were needed most, as well as their behaviour since, are actions of treachery from which they will not recover. And they do not deserve to. They no longer deserve the trust of the class they were created to represent and protect. That excerpt from my book, From Bended Knee to a New Republic, was written and published in 2016. Four years later, 
in the midst of a pandemic. A pandemic which ravages the world. The Irish Labour Party have not acknowledged, apologised for or in any way recognised any of the attacks they launched on the working and even on the middle class during that disgraceful government from 2011 to 2016 that followed. The Labour Party went over to preside over the onset of the housing emergency and its current leader, Alan Kelly, was the Minister for Housing from 2014 to 2016 when the housing emergency went into overdrive. He refused to answer questions in the doll at the time about the onsetting emergency. The people won on the water charges campaign, which Labour willingly took from Fine Gael to try to ram down our necks. Water charges for domestic use in Ireland have been abolished. And in an era when we're all confined to our homes, engaged in social distancing, required to wash our hands several dozen times a day, isn't it just as well? Isn't it just as well the people out of jobs? Isn't it just as well the people on basic incomes? Isn't it just as well the people reduced to social security aren't sitting at home waiting for the water bills the Labour Party wanted to be sent to them? Over the next number of days and weeks and months, this podcast will address many issues. We'll talk to many people. As far as me, its speaker, its author, is concerned. All I want to see is one very simple thing. Did we learn from these events? Did we learn the lessons? Did we stop issuing the platitudes? Did we stop engaging in the spin and the bluster? And that from the pandemic, something we thought we might never see and we all certainly hoped we would never see, did we start to see a better country, a better Ireland, a fairer Ireland? And that someday soon, we might actually see a government which is progressive, which is not made up from Fine Fáil and Fine Gael, and which puts the people of this country first. Thank you for listening to me. Thanks for tuning in to Left is Right. We'll be back soon with another podcast.